Welcome to Amplify Inclusion. I'm Claire from Aspire. Thanks for joining us for real stories and conversations about the power and importance of disability inclusion. Today, my conversation continues with Andres Gallegos, National Healthcare Attorney and Chair of the National Council on Disability. I met with Andres recently to unpack some of the barriers to healthcare for the disability community. In the process, Andres opened up about his own experience and his commitment to healthcare and disability rights. In our last episode, Andres shared his personal journey. Today, Andres and I discuss his recent publication in Health Affairs, titled Misperceptions of People with Disabilities Lead to Low Quality Care. In our conversation, Andres referred to a recent study led by his colleague, Dr. Lisa Iazzoni of Harvard Medical School. But her and her colleagues conducted a national study, and the study revealed that over 80% of physicians in the country view people with disabilities as having a low quality of life. And there are ancillary studies that say that how physicians view people is how they treat them. And what we know from personal experience and, and from being a disability rights attorney and being focused on accessible health care is that physicians' and nurses' attitudes towards you as a patient will determine the outcome of an encounter with your physician or with your nurse or with any healthcare provider. So how they see us is how they treat us. This information has been out there for decades. Lisa's study was not the first study to come to the conclusion. There's been ample number of studies that speak to the same issue. And these studies are published in health journals that are peer-reviewed, that are in very prestigious publications, and they're talked about, but nothing's done. The headline that said, physicians view people with disabilities as having low quality of life and impacts health outcomes, it got picked up by the press, and there was like a shrug of the shoulder, an oh well, a so what kind of reaction from the general public. Imagine, Claire, if the study was different and it was a different headline. Pick any minority group, whether it be women, whether it be black, whether it be Hispanic, whether it be Asian. Pick a religion, Jewish, Muslim. If that study revealed that 80% of the healthcare providers view people of the Jewish faith to have a low quality of life. The reaction wouldn't have been one of silence and one of acceptance. If it said that 80% of physicians view people who are black or people who are Hispanic as having a low quality of life, and that negatively impacts health outcomes and their health, again, there'd be much more attention being paid to this. And it would have been covered with much more urgency and awareness than it is with people with disabilities. There seems to be a general acceptance that this is okay when it is absolutely not. Uh, and that's what we're trying to address. Yeah, it's an incredibly staggering, alarming percentage. And, and you even liken discriminatory bias within healthcare to a virus that people with disabilities have been fighting for years. There's this insidious virus uh, that exists in healthcare and that people with disabilities know, and those who love us know, those who are paying attention also know, and that is, you know, healthcare simply hasn't embraced people with disabilities. People with mobility disabilities can't get thorough physical examinations because we're examined in our wheelchairs. 
people who are deaf and hard of hearing are not provided with sign language interpreters. When they go to emergency rooms or go see a doctor, they're in for surgery. People who are blind are not given written information in alternative formats so that they can read on their own. People with intellectual and developmental disabilities uh, are not provided care in a competent manner and are being prohibited from bringing in comfort animals. We can go down each category of disability and talk about how healthcare continues to discriminate against them despite the fact that it's been nearly five decades since the passage of the Rehabilitation Act and, and we're just over three decades since the passage of the American Disabilities Act. Those of us who know better, we have an obligation to speak up. We have an obligation to do something about it. Mm-hmm. While you were writing this piece, I know you mentioned the the anger you know, that was really deeply embedded in that writing process for you. Did you have specific instances of discrimination that you've personally experienced in mind while you were putting this to paper? Claire, absolutely. One of the reasons and one of the impetus for launching our, our national disability rights practice is shortly after my accident in 1996, where I, where I returned to work in 1997, I went to go get an eye examination right across from our office. And I went in there to speak to the optometrist on staff and schedule uh, an eye exam. And she told me, she said, look, if you can't independently transfer from your wheelchair onto the examination chair, then I can't see you here. I said, okay, you're a chain and you have other locations here in the city. Which of your locations here in the city can I go to to get an exam? She goes, no, you're not understanding. You can't go to any of them. We can't treat you. You can bring somebody with you and if they can carry you onto our exam chair, then you'll be examined. But if not, we can't examine you. And so of the seven leading national eye care providers that have a presence in the city, none of them could provide me examination unless I was able to transfer onto their examination chair. So what, what ended up happening is we, we asked around, and that specific problem was not unique to Chicago. It was happening all throughout the country. And so we took legal action and and ended up having to file seven class action lawsuits to get the issue addressed against all the seven leading providers of eye care exams. And so now when you go to one of the national eye care providers, if you're in a wheelchair, you don't have to get out of your wheelchair. The examination chair moves so that you can position yourself in place and all the equipment that you need for a proper examination comes to you instead of us having to come to it. So that's, that's just one example. Receiving a physical examination, it was a struggle trying to convince my regular physician that he has to transfer me onto an examination table in order for me to get a proper physical examination. One year, though, when he wasn't available, I had scheduled a, a physical exam and one of his partners came in to do the examination. And after he examined my upper body, he just took a step back and said, I assume everything below the waist is fine. And that was really a rhetorical question. Because with that, he left. Uh, I expected fully that at that point they would transfer me onto the examination table and I can get a proper exam, but that, that didn't occur. So, uh, I mean, those are the most egregious of things that have happened to me. Uh, there's been other instances where, again, I just, if I take ill and I end up in emergency room, I really have to plead to get the assistance that I need uh, and to have somebody transfer me where I'm not able to transfer so many layers, and it ranges from tangible things like equipment to mindsets, training, right? 
And I want to go back to something you note in your piece, which is just to quote you, you say, the breadth of the problem is already clear. It does not warrant more research. We don't need the research. Uh, what, what doctors view us and how they view us. I mean, the, the information, the results are out there. We need to be focusing on solutions. We don't need to be looking at why people with disabilities have healthcare disparities. We know that there's a considerable body of literature that informs those who want to be informed why we struggle with health disparities, why we are leading in seven different categories of health outcomes compared to our non-disabled counterparts. Among them is in the area of diabetes, in the area of, of asthma, high blood pressure, hypertension, cardiac issues. Uh, these are things that happen because of the absence of our mobility, but also the absence of healthcare providers being able to treat us on a consistent and thorough basis to prevent these conditions and the onset of, of these conditions. And when they do appear, to manage them in a very early stage as opposed to at a late stage where perhaps it's irreversible. So that information is out there. Those studies exist. We don't need to focus on that. What we need to do is to address these issues, admit that they're there, and find solutions to correct them. And that's what we hope to do at the National Council on Disability. And you did identify multiple calls to action in that piece as well. So you, you, know, you mentioned state and federal policy, and you also emphasize the need for increased focus on what you refer to as disability cultural competency for medical professionals. So I'd love to hear you explain what that would look like if it were effectively in place. So let me give you the example of paralysis and mobility disabilities. We are not all alike. Paralysis can come as a result of multiple sclerosis, cerebral palsy, spinal cord injuries. Uh, there's other conditions and traumas that lead to paralysis. And so how you interact with somebody that has a spinal cord injury as opposed to cerebral palsy, as opposed to MS, is significantly different um, in each particular category. And then uh, for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, how physicians interact with them and having an understanding of how to treat somebody who has autism and who is on the spectrum, uh, as opposed to somebody who doesn't have autism but is intellectually or developmentally disabled, that makes a difference. There's different care plans that can be developed to care for each segment and each category of, of people with disabilities. So um, back in 2010, the Affordable Care Act, the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act, otherwise known affectionately as Obamacare, required the Secretary of Health and Human Services to develop core competencies to be then used in model curricula to be adopted by all medical schools, all dental schools, all healthcare-related schools, for them to incorporate as part of their basic curriculum on, on disability cultural competency. What it means to be a person with disability, what each category of disability is, and how the best way for physicians to interact with us and how to treat us. And unfortunately, that wasn't done. That was never funded, and so that, that wasn't done. That still remains the law that the Secretary of Health and Human Services is supposed to come up with this model curricula to be adopted. So one of the things that we're doing at the National Council on Disabilities is trying to get that funded and trying to get the current administration to develop that curricula to be instituted 
and incorporate it into all uh, healthcare-related schools so that becomes, you know, part and parcel of the, of the basic training that they receive. So we believe that education is critically important uh, and education in the area of disability cultural competency is important and it would improve how physicians view us as people and how they view us as patients and how they interact with us and how they ultimately treat us. So we're, we're hoping for that to occur and so that there would be curriculum that's developed and adopted by dental schools, medical schools, nursing schools, and is taught as a regular and consistent basis. So we're hopeful we'll see what, what happens there. Well, speaking of action, the National Council on Disability released a new report specific to accessible medical equipment. Can you talk a little bit about the report and what it means for progress? I go back to 2010 with the Affordable Care Act. One of the requirements under the Affordable Care Act was for the U.S. Access Board to develop standards for accessible medical diagnostic equipment. It's things that we've I've talked about so far. It's weight scales. It's height adjustable examination tables. It's height adjustable examination chairs. It is diagnostic equipment like X-ray machines and mammography equipment that is not readily accessible for a person with a mobility disability. So in 2017, the U.S. Access Board, which is a federal agency that is charged with coming up with standards and designs for access to be implemented under uh, the Affordable Care Act or the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act or the Rehabilitation Act. And so it, it developed these standards for manufacturers of examination tables, manufacturers of um, medical diagnostic equipment. Once the U.S. Access Board created those standards, and it took them seven years to create, they are merely voluntary standards that can be adopted by a healthcare system or healthcare providers. The only healthcare system that adopted those on their own was the Veterans Administration. The Veterans Administration saw the benefit, the significant benefit for its its veterans with mobility disabilities. So while the VA adopted and embraced those standards, uniformly no one else did. And so until those standards are adopted by the Department of Justice that has primary enforcement oversight over the Americans with Disabilities Act, they are not enforceable standards. They are merely voluntary standards. So one of the things that we're requiring and asking by issuing a report, we're really speaking to both the Department of Justice and Department of Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights. We're saying, look, these standards were created. The need exists. The need for their creation still exists. And it's even more prevalent today. And therefore, adopt these as part of your regulations and your rulemaking and make these mandatory. And then once they're mandatory, the Department of Justice and Health and Human Services can also start to specify the numbers. So once there are standards and once they become part of regulations, then it's incumbent upon us, people with disabilities, to enforce those regulations. And that is if a provider does not have the equipment when it is now legally mandatory to have it, then that's where we need to enforce our rights and compel them to obtain that equipment. So I can see how these are big changes in policy that can have a significant impact. And I'm thinking about the average community member who may realize this is a huge issue and they're thinking, what practically can I do? So I wonder if you have any tips for action steps folks can take if 
you know, they don't feel that they have a place at the table where some of these policy conversations are happening. Claire, one, one of the things that, that I do in my private practice, um, our disability rights practice, and, and the manner in which we advocate for the rights of people with disabilities in the healthcare space is that we use education, we use advocacy, and then when necessary, we also use litigation. So I have provided a accessible healthcare workshop, which is anywhere from two hours to, to four hours, depending on the breadth of issues covered. If it's just dealing with one category of disability or it's addressing the needs of all categories of disability. But what we do is, is we educate people with disabilities and their family members and their advocates on how to be the best patient advocate they can be. We've come up with a program that we call Acting Bad, uh, where we want people to look at patient advocacy as an organized process for things that need to be done before the appointment, after the appointment, and during the appointment. Uh, but it's being the, your best patient advocate. And it starts with understanding what your legal rights are, what the legal obligations are of healthcare providers, then how to be your best advocate by doing certain things to make sure that you're getting the things that you need to make uh, your healthcare visits as beneficial as possible. So it starts from there. It really does. You mentioned earlier a health equity initiative, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to speak more about that because it sounded like something you were really passionate and excited about. So Claire, there, there exists within the healthcare uh, space a category called medically underserved population. And this is a designation that the Department of Health and Human Services can make in defining a particular population in the United States as being medically underserved. And with that designation, then resources are funneled to healthcare providers that want to specialize in the issues, the health issues affecting the medically underserved population. And resources are followed by way of uh, loan forgiveness for physicians that want to focus on issues affecting people with disabilities, for instance, if they want to focus on uh, healthcare issues affecting either people with paralysis, people with mobility disabilities, people who are blind or have visual impairments, people with intellectual or developmental disabilities, and so, in addition to the loan forgiveness as an incentive to get healthcare providers to focus in on this area, the National Institute of Health, uh, which is one of the largest funders of health research, uh, would then have money dedicated and allocated for the medical community to focus on research for addressing the health disparity issues affecting people with disabilities. So, one of the things that we're looking to do is get all people with disabilities designated as a medically underserved population to allow those financial resources to incentivize healthcare providers to focus on medical issues that are affecting us. So that's just one element of a, of a health equity plan. We're at the very early stages of talking to the medical community, experts in this area, to getting input on what the components of that plan is going to be. We've had preliminary conversations with the president's administration, uh, getting their initial reaction to what what this would look like, and they're incredibly supportive. And so within the next couple of weeks, we're hoping to make an announcement here to the community of what we're trying to pursue, because we are going to need the community's help to get it passed. Andres, thank you so much. I'm, I can't tell you how honored I am to have your time and for you to join me today. And I personally just want to say, I think it says so much about you as a leader and a person that, that you've made time for conversations like this right here in your local community with a local Chicagoland nonprofit. So 
I just really appreciate you sharing your story and all the incredible work you're doing. And just thank you for being with me today. Claire, anything I can do, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thanks for thinking of me and asking me. Of course. And we're excited to have you back August 5th to continue the discussion. Yes, ma'am. I look forward to it. I'd like to thank my guest, Andres Gallegos, for sharing his story and insights. We hope you'll join us for our upcoming event, where Andres and other local leaders will discuss building disability equity in healthcare. Click the link in the episode description to register now. Until then, be a part of the inclusive movement by rating and subscribing to Amplify Inclusion. This episode was co-produced and engineered by Subframe Sound. This season is made possible by generous contributions from First Bank of Highland Park and members of the Aspire community.